This episode of Escape Pod is rated PG-13 because of one F-bomb. Escape Pod 282 March 3rd, 2011 Today's story, You're Almost Here by Melinda Thielbaum Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. This week we have a giveaway. If you're a lover of Blu-ray and science fiction, A&E Home Video Pack has the perfect addition to your collection with some science fiction and culture classics. We're giving away a prize pack of Space 1999, the first season, and The Prisoner, both on Blu-ray. We're just going to do a random drawing here, so if you're a U.S. resident, send an email with the word CONTEST in the subject line to feedback at escapepod.org and enter the random drawing. We're only doing this for one week, and the contest is over on March 10th. This week's story is an odd, short little tale called You're Almost Here by Melinda Thielbar. Melinda is a writer, a Ph.D. statistician, and a software developer. She lives in North Carolina with her husband, video game writer Richard Dansky, and their three inevitable cats. She has an eight-book series called Manga Math, published through Learner's Graphic Universe, and I have to say that my eight-year-old daughter loves these books. This story first appeared in Bullspec Magazine. The coffee is rich and aromatic. You take the latte, you sit down, and you begin to listen to story time. You're almost here. By Melinda Thielbar. Can I share your table? You look up to see your dream girl. Red hair, cream-colored skin, face just a little round, breasts just a little small. Not movie star beautiful, not perfect, just nice. She smiles and her cheeks dimple, and you're in love. You gesture to the empty chair across from you with a grin of your own. Be my guest, you say. Thanks. She takes the chair and sets her coffee cup down. You close the notebook in front of you and open your mouth to say something, anything, to impress this girl. Without looking at you, she turns in her chair, pulls a phone out of her pocket, and bends over it. You watch her face in profile as she slips a pair of earbuds into her ears. Your mouth is still open, so you close it and look away. That's when you see that every table is occupied. Men in suits, women in suits, a few people your age in khakis or jeans. They're all looking down at their phones, laptops, or handheld game consoles. Sunlight streams in through the floor-to-ceiling windows, and you watch people passing by on the street for a minute. They're all looking straight ahead, faces set the way they have to be in a city this size. When it's this crowded, the only privacy you can give a stranger is not to notice them. That idea interests you, and so you open your notebook to jot it down at the bottom of the second-to-last page. As you're writing, a chair scrapes behind you, and a guy in a navy three-piece moves past. He flips his phone open, and then closed again, checking the time, and hurries out. The girl across from you moves almost as fast as he does. Thanks, she says, and flashes that amazing smile again, before she grabs her drink and hops to the newly opened table. You write, Fuck, across the top of the second-to-last page of your notebook, tuck it into your pocket, and go get another coffee. The barista-matic, you call it this, no one else does, takes your thumbprint and opens a menu with your recent drink selections. They're supposed to be sorted, so the one you drink the most is at the top. For you, it might as well be random. You do something different every time. 
This one's a half-pump vanilla, half-pump strawberry, soy milk latte with a lousy espresso bean that still costs more than all the other ingredients put together because it's fair trade and organic. You want to numerate it every combination, rank them from most to least expensive, and calculate it how long it would take to try all of them. Assuming they did nothing to the lineup, unlikely, you'll have to live to be 80, likely, and drink four cups a day, near certain. The machine hisses out your espresso and steamed milk. The menu pops up a new screen. People who enjoyed this drink also liked... You hit done and taste your drink. It's perfect and artless. You turn around and see someone sitting in the chair you just vacated. It's a guy in jeans, probably another unwilling table sharer. He's sitting inches away from the red-haired girl. They're practically back-to-back, both bopping to whatever's playing through their identical earbuds, and neither one's aware of the other. The guy's t-shirt says, steal this shirt. You put a lid on your coffee and head out the door. Across the street, a city train rattles into an elevated station. You consider getting on it. There's always a seat, and you can use your phone to access your desktop at home. The outside of each car is basically a giant flat screen, each showing a different full-color ad. The first has a woman's face, larger than life, with skin like the girl in the cafe and eyes like a dead doll. The words, feel as beautiful as you are, write themselves across the picture, and the model's face dissolves into a prescription bottle. Lines of text pop up all around it. I've never felt better. More energy than my ten-year-old. Answered prayer, as each date and time stamped less than a minute ago. On the second car, a 13-year-old boy points a magic wand toward the viewer, and the words, Harry Potter and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, run across the top in Gothic script. The wand emits a stream of colored lights as you watch, and the words, Stunningly Original, New York Times, appear in sparkling relief. You turn away, dumping your half-full coffee cup in the trash can, and head toward your apartment and your computer and the day's work you still have to do. A glance at your phone tells you it's after three. You have less than two hours. So you walk, and the train blunders away behind you, and you're left with the hum of cars making their way up and down the city street. Tiny personal models, available in any color, custom-mixed if you like, tricked out with any or all of 200 options. Slots for smartphones and media players come standard. You happen to glance into a car while you're waiting at a crosswalk. There's a Seinfeld-era rerun playing in the steering wheel. It doesn't matter, you tell yourself as you cross the street, keeping your eyes on the laughing driver nonetheless. The car has impact sensors and automatic route planning. It's running on a smart road. The driver is cargo 99.9% of the time. You arrive at your apartment at 3.34, according to the time on your phone, the only time that matters. The stairwell door opens at your thumbprint, and you walk up the four flights of stairs to your apartment. You could take the elevator for a dollar, and you tell yourself you should do it since time is getting short. You could pay a monthly fee for unlimited elevator rides. If you did, you'd spend your whole day riding up and down, just to make sure you got your money's worth. Depriving your landlord of an extra $60 a month is more appealing, so that's what you do, huffing up the steps even now when you have only 86 minutes left. You press your thumb against the plate on the front door, and it opens with a quiet beep, followed by a click. You bounce straight into your chair, kick the door closed, and roll two feet up to your desk, grabbing a cola from the refrigerator on your way past. You slot your phone into its dock, and the bulky monitor and keyboard, anachronisms you prefer to projections on your desk and wall, come to life. 
You wonder how much power these things suck while they're sitting in standby mode, but it doesn't matter because you play for electricity by the month instead of by the use. No way around that. When was the last time someone read a meter on anything? Water, power, internet service, the people who use the most are the winners because everyone gets charged the same. That thought gets you started, and you're typing before your WP even loads. The computer remembers the keystrokes, though, and it's already processing what you've put into it. The lines appear, rapid-fire, reshaping themselves as they hit the special program you've built into the WP. Every sentence is parsed, keyworded, and searched. A million bytes of information stream back for every one you send. What you say is analyzed and allied with the voices that are already out there. Your WP captures the sound of what they say and shapes your message into the boxes they've provided. Your language flows in, their language flows out. Processed, hyperlinked, soundbite friendly, and streaming ready. You don't even hear the chime when your output hits 500 words. The final essay comes out to 9.99, but you hit a space and type a pointless A just to hear the air horn that tells you you're done. Anything more than a thousand words has to be slashed. Anything less than 500 has to be stretched. The database flashes up a blog entry, a list of tweets, and a supplementary 100 words riffing on the theme of pay-as-you-go versus pay-to-play. There's also some canned quotes and likely reader links. Later in the day, after you've supposedly read the comments and thought about it, the program will find the IDs of readers who sent you the right links, fill them in, and post your addendum. Your phone's clock reads 4.50 p.m. You hit send, and the whole data structure goes to your editor, who won't read it or change it because she's paid $10 an hour to deal with 50 authors a day. The machine does it anyway. You're not supposed to know that, and you pretend you don't because you don't want them to know about your upgraded pirate copy, your dirty little secret that matches theirs. You've cracked it. You understand language, the threat of public discourse, the art of taking the Internet's gestalt and parroting it back in a way that looks bombastic and feels safe. You understand it so well you are able to teach a stupid machine that thinks in only ones and zeros to do it for you. All it needs is a series of thoughts, preferably ones everyone else has already thought to death, and it creates the theme, voice, and mood they'll find the most appealing. You get 50% more hits than anyone else on your publisher's payroll. You get yourself a drink, kettle one and soda, plenty of ice, from your closet of a kitchen and write one long sentence, perfectly punctuated, that fills the last page of your notebook. Then you close it and toss it on a pair of identical volumes that sits between the computer desk and wall. The pile's up to your knee. You estimate 10,000 words per notebook. Even with the standard loss from editing, you average around 50%. It's enough for a novel, a memoir, a treatise on the state of things. You could type it into the WP and turn it into a book. That's what you did the last time the pile got this high. It was a success by every metric. 600 downloads a day, 48% click-through, 7 days average from download to read, no fewer than 50 daily posts to message board threads. The bonuses for those stats are how you pay for your Kettle One. Besides that, there's something about the book that makes people want to buy, buy, buy. Your .05% of the pay-per-conversion revenue could purchase an apartment twice this size, a car, an antique espresso machine that would let you tamp the grounds and steam the milk without computerized help, a million little luxuries you deserve as much as anyone. You tried to sell it as it was, typed up with a straight WP, and edited sentence by painstaking sentence without the computer's back-end processing. It took you two years. Your editor called it incomprehensible, told you to stick to being dollar sign Bruce. She was right, of course. 
You didn't even try to use the dollar sign Bruce AI for the novel. You created the dollar sign Sarah AI instead. A synthesis of Austin, Dickens, and the prose of an obscure 21st century fantasy writer known mostly for his poetry, editing, and hair. It took you six months to write the program. You had a book deal three weeks later. Stunningly original, Kirkus Review called it. It wasn't your book. It was dollar sign Sarah's. Changing the words changed the meaning in a way you can't express even to yourself. You've upgraded the software. Dollar Sign Sarah's next book will be more popular than our last, but you can't make yourself do it. Dollar Sign Sarah and Dollar Sign Bruce, two wildly successful writers that are pure fiction, and you're a bigger fake than either of them. You could be this decade's O'Connor, Twain, DeLillo, Hemingway. You're probably just some self-important hack with programming skills. You'll never know. Every book you've read, every song you've heard, every piece of art of every kind that you've ever seen has been viewed through the eyes of a commentator, a remixer, a pastiche maker. Nothing in your life has equipped you to recognize an original thought should you even have one. Even if you could, you have no language to express it. Whether you try to say anything, all you hear is the hundred million voices that will chime in to respond, add, comment, change. You have no one to speak to because everyone is too busy talking and you're as bad as anyone. There are 50,273 cafes nationwide and an average of 1.63 posers with notebooks in each one. You sneer at them, but you'll never try to write the hard way again. You'll never buy that espresso machine because you're afraid you'll never make anything better than what the barista-matic gives you. You're glad the girl in the cafe didn't talk to you because there's no way to predict what she would say or how you should respond. For your whole career, you've written about where we are, where we're going, and who we'll be when we get there, but you'll never write the truth. Why, this is the future, nor are we out of it. And that was our story. I often feel that dichotomy of thinking that a new marketing algorithm is cool. Amazon has sent me to books and authors I've never heard of because of the recommended for you feature. And yet, sometimes I buy a book and I don't want to be told what else to buy. And I wish it would just shut up because I'm happy with what I have. I know I can turn it off, but, you know, it's annoying to have to jump through hoops to make it shut up. I used to work in a coffee shop. I was a damn good barista, and I served the thirsty populace of University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This was back in the 1990s when Wi-Fi was non-existent, and the laptop in a coffee shop was rare instead of standard. Still, we had our posers reading their battered books, peeking over them to see if anyone noticed, and tortured writers sucking on cigarettes and drinking cup after cup of refills. I know a guy who spent about three months on one sentence. I'm not kidding. People like that don't change no matter what technology is available. Yeah. Every week, you guys send us donations to pay our authors, and we are so grateful. You can find us and our PayPal button at escapepod.org. And be sure to tell a friend about EP. If they don't like audio, you can still download our monthly e-zine with most of our stories and our best blog posts in one neat package. And now we reach the part of the podcast that has our assistant editor, Bill Peters, and the latest feedback. Take it away, Bill. Hello, faithful listeners. I'm here with the feedback for episode 274, Angry Roses Lament by Cat Rambo, 
and read by R. Mer Lafferty. The story involved intergalactic commerce, real estate, drugs, and group consciousnesses. Swamp said he couldn't help but compare it to by David D. Levine for the salesman to an alien world factor, but the addiction aspect added a whole nother aspect to it. I felt, I really felt for Rudder in his dilemma, and actually found myself saying, yeah, why not, which is kind of scary, and a sign of good characterization. I also felt for Angry Rose, though I didn't agree with her at all. I liked the honesty between Rudder and Solon, the part where Solon says, we will not survive unless you agree, and then Rudder responds, that is not my responsibility, was great. Void Minashi said, Who says that an absorbed mind still retains itself and doesn't just become a series of accessible data files in the host's body? The host would be able to fake being that person simply by accessing the data from their mind without that person existing as themselves. To which Unblinking replied, That was the best part of the story for me. The end result can be sinister or happy, depending on whether the Solon is lying. And we have no way of knowing the truth, as the Solon itself points out. It's clear that it retains the knowledge of the Eaton because of its intimate knowledge of humans, but it's not at all clear whether the human is conscious or a willing participant in the arrangement. I guess the fact that the Solon didn't just kill the guy given the ample opportunity might imply that the last guy was also a willing participant at the beginning, but that doesn't clarify whether the human conscious human is conscious after the fact. So I liked it. A very good moral dilemma with no easy answer. Despite his apparent death, I think his choice is a reasonable one. If not one, I'm entirely comfortable with. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week for the feedback from episode 275, Schrodinger's Cat Lady. Thank you, Bill. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artist Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Spread the word about Escape Pod, because we're awesome. Be sure to check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy, at their .org domains. They're awesome, too. Escape Pod is edited by Mer Lafferty, with Bill Peters as assistant editor, and Matt Weller as producer. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. And that was our show for this week. Our quote is from Alexander Pope. Coffee, which makes the politician wise and see through all things with his half-shut eyes. We'll see you next week. Until then, be mighty. Are you sitting at home alone reading Jeff Vandermeer and wondering if you could ever meet him? Is your framed copy of The City Not Long After waiting for an autograph from Pat Murphy. Did you always want to go to Wisconsin, but it's too far away because you live in the Bay Area? Are you a science fiction fan looking for a friendly, literary, fun, and fabulous science fiction convention? Well, look no further. FogCon is here for you. FogCon is a new science fiction convention premiering in San Francisco this year. March 11th through 13th, 2011. Honored guests include Pat Murphy and Jeff Vandermeer. And there's even a guest editor, Ann Vandermeer. 
Hey, do you think she knows Jeff? The convention will be haunted by a ghost of honor, Fritz Leiber. <laughs> there will be all the usual great convention stuff. Panels, readings, a dealer room, parties. And some new interesting stuff, too. Like a poster session, a do-your-own programming session, homemade beer, and possibly even a karaoke night. Remember... March 11 through 13 in San Francisco, fogcon.org. It's the weekend after Potlatch. Come for Potlatch, stay for Fogcon. <laughs>